Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. So the reading is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, on page 1180. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let me move on to chapter 4, verses 10 to 20. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia... Not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we stand, uh, let's pray together. And Heavenly Father, we just pray very simply this morning uh, that through this passage of the Holy Scriptures, you would show us afresh the Lord Jesus and show us afresh and uh, write in our hearts the value of knowing the Lord Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, please sit down. And as you sit down, if you could be turning back in your Bibles to uh, those passages from uh, Philippians chapters 3 and 4. That's on page 1180 uh, of the Church Bibles. There's also a handout amongst the papers you were given on the way in. uh, So you might like to use that uh, to see how far we've got. So then, Christmas is, uh, what, two days away? My children are counting down the hours. We need to have a a new type of advent calendar, I think, one that has a sort of hourly boxes on it. That would be good. And apparently this is the season of joy. And the aim in every family is goodwill and contentment. It's also, as we know, that the season of hospitality and generosity. And as we see every year, a huge amount of effort and expense does flow into those things in our culture around us. Uh, I think it's fair to say as a society, we do want to be happy at this time of year. We do want to be happy and content. We do want others to be happy as well. And we even want to be generous. We genuinely, as a culture, want to be generous. But of course, the the desire is one thing. Uh, The practice is quite another I think most of us are probably quite aware that as a, as, a, as a sort of cultural festival, Christmas simply cannot bear the weight of expectation that we place on it. Uh, even the financial strain can be enough to open up fault lines in many families. I was taking our car to the garage just last week and uh, the woman in front of me in the office was, um, was picking her car up and she'd just been handing, handed an eye-wateringly large bill. I mean, it was enormous. And her comment straight away was, well, there goes my Christmas. Uh, So this is a time where we do want to be happy and content, and we do want to be generous, uh, but in practice, of course, we're struggling to make those things happen. So what's the solution? Well, I want to persuade you this morning that the the answer to that problem lies in accounting and budgeting Uh, Therein lies the secret of contentment and generosity. Now, I have a a very unusual and extraordinary wife who explained to me just this last week, budgeting is brilliant. Those were her words. Budgeting is brilliant. I wonder how many of you out there have heard, been on the receiving end of those words from your spouse. I I imagine that I may be the only one. And um, that's basically the message I want to pass on to you this morning. Budgeting is brilliant, but I'm not talking about financial accounting here. I'm talking about the kind of accounting that the Apostle Paul encourages in this letter to the Philippians. I want us to indulge and engage in a spiritual accounting. And this morning I want us to see some of the benefits of that discipline and uh, even if you've got that passage open in front of them, you can see them straight away, some of the back benefits of spiritual accounting. Because of spiritual accounting, Paul is able to say, this is chapter 4, verse 11, 
I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. What an extraordinary thing. What's more, because of their good spiritual accounting, the Philippians are able to be both on the one hand wildly generous and yet confident, chapter 4, verse 19, that God will meet all their needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So then this morning uh, we're having a short lesson in spiritual accounting and the run up to Christmas. And our purpose this morning is that by learning to value knowing Christ, we might indeed learn to be content and uh, what's more generous too. And we're just going to split that into three parts this morning. So first learning like Paul to, to value knowing Christ. And then secondly, knowing Christ, we can then learn to be content And then finally, knowing our partnership in Christ, our partnership with others in Christ, we can learn to be generous. But the heart of it really lies under that very first point. And the first of those extracts that we just had read to us uh, from Philippians, uh, that learning like Paul to value knowing Christ, learning like Paul to value knowing Christ. Now listen again to Paul describing how he came to value Christ. Take a look back with me at chapter 3 and at verses 7 and 8. This is what Paul says. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now I wonder if you can see what's happened to Paul at that moment that he came to Christ. He used to think about the world and his life in a certain way. He used to think that certain things he had and certain things he did were very valuable. Now, he truly believed those things. But then he discovered Christ. Or rather, to be more accurate, Christ discovered him. And when that happened, he had to do his accounts all over again. He had to start afresh. And when he did that, what he thought was valuable turned out to be loss. What he thought was profit turned out to be lost. What he thought was extremely valuable turned out, and he says, uses the word, smelly rubbish. And what's more, what he had in Christ turned out to be priceless. I remember some time ago, our children uh, discovered one of those uh, scratch cards that sometimes get included in newspapers. And a few moments later after this discovery, the cry went up. We've won a million pounds. We have, we have. Of course, we hadn't. Uh, So a few moments later, a few moments after that, there had to be a recalculation in their minds. What they had thought for a moment was extreme gain turned out to be rubbish. Literally rubbish. Fit to be only screwed up and thrown into the bin. And it is very similar when we encounter the Lord Jesus Christ Many things we have pursued as valuable turn out on closer inspection to have been a waste of time, turn out to be value less. They do not deliver 
what they promise. In particular, they do not deliver what we're thinking about this morning. They do not deliver contentment. And most of them will distract us from being generous. And like a a scratch card, they just need throwing away. But the big difference when we encounter Christ is that in Christ we discover something of greater value than even the fanciest scratch card can promise. Much greater value, in fact. We discover a new future that stretches into eternity, a future of life and blessing. And even now we discover a relationship with God through Christ that surpasses everything in its greatness, absolutely everything. Uh, The Lord Jesus put it like this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in, in his joy, he sold all that he had and bought that field. And of course, Christmas is a great time to reflect upon the value of Christ and the value of knowing Christ and the value of that future kingdom that we're going to be a part of. And I'll come back and say something more about that uh, towards the end. Uh, But the thing I want to trace through this morning is how valuing Christ feeds into a number of other things that we value very highly, such as contentment and generosity. So let's take contentment first. This is our second main point this morning. Knowing Christ, learn to be content, says the Apostle Paul. Knowing Christ, learn to be content to be content. Now look with me back at uh, chapter 4, verses 10 through to 12. Uh, Paul says this to the Philippians, "Um, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have uh, renewed your concern for me. That's because he's received a a gift we discover later from Epaphroditus from them. Indeed, you had been concerned, but uh, you had no opportunity to show it. And then he goes on to say this, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. So you see what Paul's saying to the Philippians? He's saying, well, you know, thank you for your gifts. Thank you for your concern. Although actually, I didn't need it. Why didn't he need it? Because Paul had learned to be content in every circumstance. It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? What a brilliant thing to learn. Now, in contrast, of course, we live in a culture that has not learned to be content. Uh, it's interesting, it's, it's the UK, in the UK, since the Second World War, you can, you can work it out. The real, in, real incomes have risen on average by three or four times, uh, which is annoying. It's staggering, isn't it? Imagine waking up tomorrow with three or four times the income that you had today. You'd have thought that might make you content. But you look over the same period that, on average, there's been no significant increase in reported levels of well-being or happiness In other words, we remain as stubbornly miserable today as a culture as we were back then. Nothing much has changed. Uh, And as a Christian within that culture, well, frankly, if I'd cracked contentment like the Apostle Paul, 
You know, I'd be smiling more. I really would be smiling more. So then, how did Paul learn contentment? Well, the clue is there in verse 13. Paul says this, famous words, wonderful words. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Paul can face any situation, all these things. He can face need, plenty. He can be well-fed or he can be hungry through the one who gives him strength, through the one who empowers him. That's what allows him to rejoice in prison facing death, which is where he probably is when he's writing this. That's what allows him to write earlier in the letter, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The secret of contentment is to know Christ. That's what Paul learned. In other words, we already know the secret of contentment if we already know Christ. But I know that you might well say at this point, but I do know Christ. I I really do know Christ. But I don't feel very content. And it's true, although contentment comes from knowing Christ, not everyone who knows Christ feels content. Look again closely at what Paul says. He says, verse 12, I have learned the secret of being content. Contentment is not something that comes to us kind of automatically. It is something that we have to learn. But how do we learn? Well, it all comes back to good spiritual accounting. You see, the moment that we can say from the heart, really meaning it, as soon as we can say with Paul, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, that moment is the moment we have learned to be content. Now think about this uh, with me for a moment. Uh, imagine this scenario. I, I wonder, what amount of money would you stop to pick up if you saw it lying on the street? You're walking along and there on the pavement is some, some cash that somebody's dropped some time ago and there's no chance of getting it back to them. What amount of money would you bother to stop, up, stop and pick up? I think many of us, if we passed a two-pence coin, you know, we wouldn't bother to stop and pick up the coin. On the other hand, it was a, if it was a ten-pound note, we might. You know, so that's the kind of question that I'm asking. Now, there's a man called uh, Brad Templeton in the States who's tried to work out how much money Bill Gates would stop to pick up if he was on his way to work. Uh, Okay, this was back when Bill Gates was earning very large amounts of money back in the the 1990s. So this is how the calculation goes. So let's say it takes three seconds to stop, stoop down, pick the money up, okay? Now, there was a time back in the 1990s when Bill Gates was earning so much at work that Brad Templeton reckons that if he saw a $10,000 treasury bill lying on the pavement, it wouldn't be worth his while stopping and picking it up. He'd be better off shrugging his shoulders and carrying on to work and earning more at work than that three seconds picking up the treasury bill. 
Now that seems extraordinary to us, I think, doesn't it? That, that kind of wealth seems unreal. But it wasn't unreal to the Apostle Paul. And as he went through life and coped with the ups and downs, he was driven by a very similar kind of reasoning. You see, he has calculated that he has such wealth in knowing Christ and the certain hope of more wealth to come that he can face the ups and downs of life without any trouble at all. In the end, he can just shrug them off as of little consequence compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. So here's a little test for us. If we knew Christ as Paul had learned to know him, well, imagine this. Imagine landing a fortune unexpectedly. Uh, Now, I know you don't do the lottery. I know you don't. But imagine a, a lottery ticket floats in, you know, through the window or something, your open window. It turns out to be the winner. It's the year of millions. It's a vast, vast sum of money. That happens to you. Would you be able to say in that moment, well, you know, that's nice. That might be able to help someone I know. But for me, actually, it doesn't really change anything. For me, I could just leave it. Or imagine losing everything. Uh, This is the scenario that Job faced, isn't it, of course, in in the Old Testament. Everything gone. All his children dead. His health taken away. And if we found ourselves in that situation, we might well be weeping. We should be weeping, and others weeping with us. But would we be able to say what Job said? Would we be able to say, the Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Not just that, though, of course. Would we be able to say, but I still know Christ. That can't be taken away. That's the main thing. Really, I'm just as rich as I was before. Now, some of you may know the uh, testimony of uh, Joni Erickson Tada. Uh, she wrote a book back in the 1970s, which begins with the account of how she dived into a shallow pool as a young woman and was left a, a quadriplegic in, in a wheelchair for the rest of her life. And the really striking thing about uh, her testimony, and the very striking thing about that book, I think, is, is where she says this. She says that she would rather be a quadriplegic in a wheelchair and knowing Christ than an able-bodied person and not. It's a very remarkable testimony, isn't it? She would rather be disabled in a wheelchair knowing Christ than an able-bodied person and not. And again, that does seem extraordinary to us. But that is someone who, like Paul, knows the true value of knowing Christ. So this is how it goes. Paul has said to the Philippians, thank you for the gift, though I didn't actually need it. And Paul didn't actually need that financial gift because he was delighting and depending on the riches of knowing Christ, facing every circumstance empowered by that. Thank you for the gifts, although I didn't actually need it. It seems perhaps a rude thing to say in a thank you letter. You know, it's not something you'd encourage your, your children to do this Christmas, is it? Especially since uh, poor Epaphroditus, who, who brought the gift, nearly died getting it to him. 
But Paul so wants to set an example of depending only on Christ that he wants to show that he's not depending on anything or anyone else, not even the Philippians. It's that dependence on Christ alone that he wants to encourage and foster in them. So that's the secret of contentment. We already know the secret of contentment. And it's the kind of contentment I want to encourage in you this morning. We can, we can look for happiness and satisfaction and contentment in all sorts of places, of course. And people around us are trying to find those things in all sorts of places. And it's, it's tempting to follow them in that kind of frantic search. But this, this is the contentment that matters. The contentment that flows from knowing the riches of knowing Christ. But the riches of knowing Christ don't just flow out in contentment. We also find in this chapter that they flow out in generosity. And this is our third and final point this morning. That in knowing our partnership in Christ, we can learn to be generous. Knowing our partnership in Christ, we can learn to be generous. That is, learn to be generous like the Philippians. It's the Philippians now who stand as the example of generosity. And you can see that the Philippians have indeed learned to be generous uh, throughout the passage that we've got before us this morning. Verse 10, for example, Paul's rejoicing in their generosity. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that you've renewed your concern for me. Or perhaps you could look on to verse 16, where Paul says, When I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again. There was a generosity there uh, that other people weren't showing. And elsewhere, Paul says this about the Macedonian churches, which Philippi was one example. And I've put the the quote, it's from 2 Corinthians, uh, on your handout. He says this, In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So the Philippian church has learned to be generous in supporting others in gospel ministry and especially the apostle paul now we i think we'd have to say if we're being honest about this have a problem with generosity now one of the issues here is that we might not notice our problem with generosity because again of the culture around us if you look up the figures the average level of uh, charitable giving in a uk household is about £4 per week, uh, which is about 0.5% of household income. And it's a very skewed distribution. So most households hardly give anything at all. You know, some give quite a lot, but most give hardly anything at all. What that means is that if I give anything as a, as a Christian, then it, I will tend to feel generous relative to the culture around me relative to my non-Christian neighbour. Uh, there was a story in the, in the, the magazine The Briefing recently where a, a man in a well-paid job, this is back in, in Australia, he described how as a recent convert he used to feel incredibly generous uh, when he put a $50 bill in the collection plate each week. That's about £30. Uh, pounds. And it was only later that he realised that actually, uh, given what he was earning... That was, that was nothing like enough to support effective gospel ministry. He felt generous, and I suppose in, in some ways relative to, to the culture around him, he was being generous, but really it was nothing alike, like enough. 
Uh, here's another true story. A, a church in Australia, also in Australia, wonder what would happen if, if everyone in their congregation started giving at the rate of 10% uh, to support gospel ministry. I think we'd have to say that 10% is in some ways a fairly minimal amount for New Testament believers. So they did the sums and they calculated that if everyone in their congregation did indeed do that, the giving would go up. The giving would go up. Uh, but here's the twist. The giving would go up even if the entire church family were on unemployment benefit. It would still go up. So let's ask the hard questions. How would we do under similar calculations as a church family? Now, I've got to be really careful here because I know there are a number, a large number of really sacrificial givers within this church family. Uh, what's why I also know that I and my family uh, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't eat if it wasn't for the giving of this church family. So I, I don't want to, in anything that I'm saying, want to sound ungrateful. But on average, as a whole, as a whole church family, how do we do? Well, let's do the sums, and it goes something like this. We can say that if, if households here received average household income for the UK, okay, that's the first assumption, and if every household that gives here gave at the rate of 5%, okay, then our giving as a church family will go up. In other words, it seems unlikely that Paul would use the same words to us as he used for those churches in Macedonia. And uh, like I suspect many churches in the West, unlike that church in Australia I mentioned earlier, we have to face up that he would probably say something else to us. More likely, he would say something like the panel on the right of the handout. Something like this, that in the midst of quite easy times, out of their relative riches, they gave somewhat less than the bare minimum. And I suspect that he wouldn't hold back in saying that to us, which is why I haven't held back in saying it to you this morning. So we do have a problem with generosity. So how can we learn? How can we learn to be different? How can we learn from the Macedonian churches, like the church in Philippi, how to be more generous? Well, the clue this time is at the end of chapter 4 and verse 17. Paul says this about the reasons why he's so delighted in what the Philippians are doing. He says this, I am looking for what may be credited to your account. That's a very tricky little phrase to translate, but I think we can at least see roughly what Paul's getting at here. It's something like, I have set my heart on the interest, the reward that accrues to your account. In other words, once again, Paul is speaking in the language of spiritual accounting. And as he does this, as he reflects on what the Philippians are doing, he's, if you like, examining their books. He's doing an audit on them, a spiritual audit. And he has seen in their generosity that those spiritual accounts are healthy. And he is rejoicing because what they're doing shows that, like him, they know the glorious riches of knowing Christ. That is where their heart is. That is where, so to speak, they will um, uh, gain interest 
find their reward. And, and the joy of that, from the joy of that, and from knowing that wealth, then their gener- generosity overflows. So as Jesus might put it, uh, what they're doing shows where their treasure is. It shows that they're doing their accounting and making all their investment decisions according to their heavenly bank account. It's as if Paul is saying something like this. I am rich in Christ and I am pleased with what you have done. What's more, God is pleased with what you have done. You can see that at the end of verse 18. The, the gifts are a, a fragrant offering, an, ex, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. They're showing where the, the hearts of the Philippians lie. And then finally, verse 19, he reminds them that they are rich too. Verse 19, and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So you see how it goes? Paul says, I am rich in Christ. God is pleased you are rich. You will, every, every need will be met by God in Christ Jesus. And from such riches then flows generosity. So picture the Christian life a little like this as a, as a walk or a, a pilgrimage. Imagine two Christians walking that walk together side by side in, in partnership in the gospel. Now, as you picture them, you might say that they don't look rich. They don't look rich. Nonetheless, there's a surprising confidence in their step. And in fact, they are rich beyond measure. Now, one of them notices that the other one is shivering because of the cold. And the first Christian gives the other one his coat. Thank you very much, says the shivering Christian. Although with what we have and where we are going, I wasn't really minding the cold and I don't really need it. And the first one replies, yes. Yes, that's true, but that means that I don't mind the cold either. And I don't need it either. So here it is. Now each one of those Christians has what it takes to face the ups and downs of life. Each one of them has Christ. And they know it, and they're valuing it rightly. It gives them, in some senses, a a degree of independence from the circumstances they face every day as they depend upon Christ. But as a partnership, they are even stronger, able to face all sorts of trials and tribulations together, free to take all sorts of risks for the glory of God. So that's the picture that's presented to us in this letter. Paul and the Philippians are learning to do their accounting right, including the true value of knowing Christ in their calculations. That's what they were doing. I think we would have to say that, and I include myself in this, we seem to be doing our accounts still according to the old rules. That does seem to be our problem. Paul has learned contentment. We've seen that the joy of the Philippians is welling up in rich generosity and their partnership together is strong and it is beautiful. 
And I think we would have to say that compared to them, um, we're struggling. But it doesn't have to be like that. And so let me encourage us all this Christmas to do our accounts, our spiritual accounts. Budgeting is brilliant. Christmas is potentially a great time to be doing this. And if you want a, a part of the Christmas story to help you uh, think about this, uh, think, think of the Magi. Think of the Magi seeing the, the child Jesus for the very first time. And Matthew in his gospel describes them as, as more than content, much more than content. He says they are overjoyed with a great joy. And he describes them as more than merely generous at that moment. Uh, now, much I dare say could be said about their gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. But perhaps the main thing to say is just, is just how fearfully expensive those gifts were. It was, a, you know, materially speaking, a great sacrifice as they opened up their treasure chests and that overflowing joy welled up in a, in a rich generosity at that moment. How were they able to do that? How were they able to do that? Well, because they could say what Paul could say. And we should be able to want to say it too. And want to say it from the heart. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. So to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen.